This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. We're heading over to the amazing Pilsen Community Books now, a regular stop on our freedom tour for a conversation with Manisha Gelman, author of Indigenous Language Politics in the Schoolroom, Cultural Survival in Mexico and the United States. Hi, y'all. I'm Mandy Medley. I'm one of the worker owners here at Pilsen Community Books. We are a radical bookstore and worker cooperative, and we are always, always excited to host Bill here. Uh, And tonight we have a very special Indigenous Peoples Day edition of Under the Tree podcast. Um, And so without further ado, I'm going to introduce tonight's guests. First and foremost, Bill Ayers is an author, activist, beloved Chicago rabble rouser, and host of Under the Tree podcast, a seminar on freedom. And our guest of honor tonight, Manisha Galman, is an associate. Yeah. Round of applause. Base. Yeah. is an associate professor of political science at Emerson College and the author of Indigenous, Indigenous Language Politics in the Schoolroom, Cultural Survival in Mexico and the United States, which examines how Indigenous high school students resist assimilation and assert their identities through access to Indigenous language classes in public schools. Um, additionally, she is the founder and director of the Emerson Prison Initiative, which brings high-quality liberal arts education to incarcerated students at Massachusetts Correctional Institute at Concord, a men's medium security prison, and she holds a PhD from Northwestern. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mandy, and thank you, Pilsen Community Books. Um, I I want to begin by saying we are uh, taping this for a podcast, Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. And um, so we we always do a certain kind of traditional things. Um, one is that we do a land acknowledgement, and on Indigenous Peoples Day, it seems most appropriate to to note, not as a formality, but in a more deeply felt way, that we are here in the Chicago land area, the so-called Chicago land area. It is occupied land, and it is the the traditional land of many many lineages, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa. And we acknowledge them again, not just as a formality, but to remind ourselves that we have to have an open heart and an open mind when we think about change, when we think about justice, when we think about um, you know. Uh, building a world that's fit for all. And it would be remiss if I didn't note on this day that the indigenous people in the area of the Middle East are also suffering horribly, and that the tragedy that we've all witnessed, the horrific deaths and and strikes and counter-strikes, we have to remember that the indigenous people all over the world have suffered throughout the millennia, and that we have a responsibility. If we have our eyes on freedom, we have a responsibility to think about what is owed, what is our responsibility to open our eyes, to pay attention, to be astonished, and then to act to change things. So here we are in Chicago. I often describe Chicago as a conundrum wrapped in a contradiction. And I, th- I sometimes think that we ought to 
as a demonstration, some Indigenous People's Day, we should all get that yellow police tape and surround the whole city with it. And, uh, you know, and say, don't enter, it's a crime scene, because in many ways it is. It's also an exciting place to be, exciting place to be at this moment. But for tonight, I am really excited to be um, in conversation with Manisha Gelman, uh, an old friend and the author of Indigenous Language Politics in the Schoolroom. A really exciting book. And I've asked Manisha, Welcome, Manisha. And she has a base here in Chicago, and many of her friends are here. Uh, but I've asked her to begin by telling us a little bit about the content of the book, why she wrote it, why she undertook it. And I also urged her to read a few paragraphs so we can get a sense of the voice of the author. So take it away, Manisha. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me, Bill. And thanks, everyone, for coming out to spend this evening together. This book came about, really, it's the the product of my own lived experience moving through the public education system in California and then getting to college and graduate school and feeling like I just didn't know what was actually going on in the world from that K through 12 education, feeling like I didn't have a solid grounding in the politics of colonization and decolonization. And I wanted the space to look at the role of that education system to try to understand how we're forming young people, you know, how I, how myself, how I was formed and how my kids are being formed and how other people's kids are being formed in these daily, weekly spaces where young folks spend so much time and learn what the world is all about. And I began working with the Yurok tribe in 2016. I Two of the case studies in the book are from the area that I grew up in. And I reached out to the education department and the Yurok tribe is it's the largest tribe in Northern California. There's about 6,000 enrolled members. Uh, there are about 16 advanced level Yurok language keepers in the tribe. And so it's, you know, it's a small language group. And I wanted to understand what it means to enact decolonization in public spaces in connection with access to this language that is the root of culture keeping for Yurok people, and yet obviously not something available to everyone based on the history of colonization and also the numbers of who who is an active speaker. So over a course, the course of several years, I worked with the tribe to figure out what kinds of questions were of interest to them and how we could find some sort of research partnership that would both meet my goals as a, as a social scientist and also meet some of their goals in terms of documenting the impact of language access by putting Yurok language into the high school, into the high schools in the far Northern California region. So from there, I'm also a comparative political scientist and have worked for a long time in Mexico. And so I wanted to look comparatively at um, Zapotec language access for high schoolers in Southern Mexico, where I had done a lot of work during my uh, during my doctoral phase and have continued to work with people looking at issues of, of indigenous cultural resurgence. And so this book really came about through the questions that that Yurok interlocutors had. What kinds of things did they want a social scientist to document to create some sort of peer peer reviewed literature trajectory for, and and also to to look at the issue of how young people are educated and formed, and what kind of what kind of citizens we're producing in the public schools in terms of understanding the 
politics of colonization and decolonization in the 21st century. So with that, I'll just I'll just read. I I wanted to read you the opening uh, uh, like page of the book to give a sense of the the two case studies, and then then I'll stop. I'll keep it fairly short. So the first chapter is called "Contemporary Culture Side: Why Language Politics Matters for Youth Participation." And I invite you to close your eyes, relax, you know, for a couple of paragraphs. Sun bounces off the metal roof and cooks the concrete in the open-air classroom where I sit with a high school student, reviewing her informed consent documents before we start the interview. The young woman across from me in her school-issue blue pleated skirt and knee socks glances away from me nervously. I've invited her out of class where her friends giggled at her departure, and she tells me I'm the first foreigner she's ever talked to. The mountains and cacti are silhouettes behind us, and a lone motorcycle taxi churns dust on the road up to the school, delivering a student running late. As the audio recorder clicks on, I ask the same question I've asked dozens of times before. In what ways do you feel included or excluded at your school? How do you identify yourself culturally? What helps motivate you to participate in your school or community? Eti, a pseudonym, tells me she was displaced from her home community in the Sierra Mixteca Mountains a few years earlier because of paramilitary violence there. Her family relocated to Oaxaca de Juarez, the capital city of Oaxaca State in Mexico, where her parents found work, and she commutes more than 90 minutes each way at great expense to attend the small rural high school that centers around indigenous cultural learning. As we sweat in the mid-afternoon sun near the school's cactus nursery, I ask her, why not go to a better-resourced school closer to her new home in the city? She responds, as an Indigenous person, I feel more comfortable in a school that's trying to include Indigenous values, like language, even though here they teach Zapotec and I speak Mixteca. Before we had to leave my town, I went to a similar school there, too. There's more understanding and less discrimination when I'm not the only Indigenous student. End quote. The, the Bachillerato Integral Comunitario, or BIC, in Oaxaca is the only high school system in the state of Oaxaca that deliberately prioritizes Indigenous cultural continuity, including through Indigenous language instruction. Eti's deliberate pursuit of a schooling system that includes indigenous values and curricula in Oaxaca demonstrates her ability to analyze her own participation in identity negotiation and related social and political positionality as an indigenous person. And then I'm going to skip a handful of paragraphs to just read one paragraph from the Hoopa, California case study. 3,000 miles away in a newly built conference room that blocks out the thick morning fog, Jake, his real name, sits across from me in the glow of the digital audio recorder. A senior at Hoopa Valley High School, located on the Hoopa Valley Indian Reservation, he responds to a question about the importance of learning the Yurok language by saying, Our language, it's kind of like dying out slowly, but us younger people are just bringing it back, reviving it. The more speakers, the better. The idea that young people can help right a historical wrong of the past by revitalizing a language that the boarding school generation had literally beaten out of them is palpable in Yurok classrooms, and it's paired with other types of resurgence and survivance in Native communities. So I'll I'll stop there with that that little bit, and I do throughout the book try to you know to use descriptive language to make it be a readable book 
rather than focusing on the social science puzzle that guides the way that I did the research, but is ultimately not the most interesting aspect of the story that I want to tell. I'm at a stage in my life where I got tired of working all day on political science writing and then choosing different books to read at night for pleasure. And so I'm really trying to find ways to write that bring the pleasure of the novel, the pleasure of storytelling into academic writing so that the research I do can be communicated in ways that that are actually uh, where there's some sort of emotionality to the work happening. So there's certainly chapters that, you know, that show the core of the research, but I'm also trying to set the scene and really describe the the human lives at stake in identity politics. Thank you, Anisha. <clears throat> Don't you also think, though, that you, th- this last point you were making, don't you also think that storytelling, um, ethnographic accounts, oral histories are underrated in academia? And it's not just a matter of making scholarship you know, palatable. It's actually a different way of thinking about how what knowledge is and what knowledge is of value, don't you think? Absolutely. I mean, I... I- after college, worked as a radio journalist for several years before going to grad school. And so I, I have been so moved by the power of storytelling in my own political awareness and my own uh, assigning value to the political world. But I was trained just up the road at Northwestern to be a comparative social scientist and to really focus on the research puzzle at, you know, at all costs. And so it's taken me a while in my life to find my way back to storytelling and part of that is setting down the imposter syndrome of of life and certainly academia to say I'm able to tell a good story and also do causal social science work at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I th- but I think in many ways, oral history, for example, is an ancient way of passing knowledge on. It's not it's not an illegitimate thing and. My sister-in-law, Jennifer Dorn, we were talking with her earlier. She's just done an oral history of midwifery. And I think that, um, which we will do an event here in no time, so come on back. But, um, but you know, it's like, it's like oral history is, by, by trained historians, is often seen as the poor cousin of real history. But in reality, I think oral history, history without oral accounts is bereft of something important, something central about knowledge. So, in some ways, I think you're, you, you know, we should hold it up as legitimate and fight for it as a legitimate form of knowledge. We absolutely should, and it will be a significant fight. I'll say that um, oral histories are exempt from the institutional review boards that govern human subject research. That's and why so, I love them. Yeah. I mean, I, you, know, you, don't go, you don't have to go through the bullshit. Right, and, so you know. I went through the bullshit with this book and with all of my other research. I've gone through the institutional review boards because, because when you do that, you can make generalizable claims about knowledge, and the fact that we can't do that with oral histories is deeply disturbing. I mean, I think it looks at these much larger tensions within academia in terms of what counts as knowledge. My what I feel good about in this book is that I was able to take the the knowledge that people already know that's already visible and present in the oral histories of the Yurok community of the Zapotec community and document it using a social science toolkit. So the stories, the anecdotes are still present in the way that people communicate the ideas, but the research process is such that I'm able to generalize to say 
access to Indigenous language is really powerful for young people in schools, full stop. Oral history, uh, communicate, communicative arts already tell us that. We know it. But now we've confirmed it in a way that is generalizable where I can present it to school boards and other spaces to try to make the case for why we should expand that access. So I totally agree. I mean, I think it's ridiculous and problematic that we have these different set of criteria of what counts as knowledge. I decided to not take on that fight in this right. in this book and instead say, okay, I'm going to do the institutional review board process for human subject research and be able to, you know, to document what people already know. Take it on in your next book, because I think it's a fight worth having. And I think the fact that I was tickled when the standards came out and, and you didn't have to have IRB approval uh, in, in order if you weren't generalizing or if you weren't making a causal claim. For those of you who don't know, the Institutional Review Board, every university has to have one. It's required for you know, for getting federal money and for a lot of other money. But the thing that's interesting, I was on the IRB, university-wide IRB at University of Illinois, Chicago. And the thing that's interesting is the IRB, when you look at some of the things that come before them in terms of professors' research, student research, they are more interested in protecting the institution from a lawsuit than they are actually interested in the ethics of protecting human subjects from us, you know, because we're always so benign. But but the reality is the the basic tenets of of ethics and research People have a right to leave the research project. You have to be honest about what you're doing. These are sensible things, and these are things we all ought to be doing. The IRB seems to skip over a lot of that in the interest of protecting against lawsuits. So that's just a jab at the university. Well, and the other thing that the institutional review boards do is they call research participants subjects. There's a really, right. uh, there's a subjective, subjectification of humans in the process. And I mean, I've actually found it to be a really fascinating microcosm for how colonization works, that agency is taken away from people and we offer them a very limited menu of rights in exchange for subjecting them to somebody else's thought process. And so, so the second chapter in the book where I describe the collaborative methodology process that I use in working uh, with the communities that, that were involved in this research really looks at that as a counterpoint to that dynamic. Yes, I had to uh, apply and successfully get IRB approval, but what IRB calls subjects, I call participants or stakeholders or community members or people directly affected by the research. So, I mean, to some extent, it's code switching, which is what Indigenous students do in public school classrooms all the time. They're code switching between their Indigenous identities and the colonized identities that allow them to succeed in both worlds. And and I mean, I try to do that with the IRB. I'm succeeding in that world. And I'm also trying to create an agentive space, a space where young people and the people that care about them can be agents of change rather than human subjects in the language of the IRB. Yeah. And I think I like all the switches you made around not calling people human subjects or, you know, kind of you're the one with the microphone. You're the one with the with the university degree. You're the one who's going to get um it's the benefits of this pr project. And, and so finding ways to turn that on its head. And in oral history, we don't call people subjects. We call them narrators. They're the na narrators. We're the learners. They're the teachers. Um, they know more about what we're, they're talking about than we do. And taking that seriously, I think, really matters. And that's one of the great the, – the, the reflection on all, all that in this book is really – 
you know, worth a read right there. You do talk about the research puzzle, which I was tickled about, but then you did say you went through the IRB process. You talk, I, I like the word research puzzle as opposed to the research question, but pretty quickly you did ask research questions. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that part of the research puzzle? I mean, why did you frame it that way? So for me, a research puzzle means that there's actually a mystery, like there's actually something that we want to better understand. And I, as a college professor, I tell my students, you know, a puzzle means that there's there's genuine, genuinely a question. If your argument is in your research question, then you've already answered your question. There isn't a mystery, you know, if you, so, so making a question that is truly puzzling in some way gives us the space to practice a kind of open inquiry. For me, I, I asked the, the Yurok interlocutors that I was working with, which were maybe mainly people from the Yurok Education Department and specifically from the Yurok Language Program, you know, help me understand what might seem mysterious to outsiders. Like, what is the puzzle that you might you might have the answer to, but that may not be obvious to school principals or school boards where you're trying to advocate for, you know, having having Yurok language on the menu. And so together we came up with these these questions of how does how does language access impact participation? And so from the puzzle, I can then ask the kinds of questions that I described in those opening paragraphs of the book to be able to invite research participants to articulate in their own words what they think the answers might be. But then, isn't it also true that if you're doing this kind of research, whether it's oral history or critical ethnography, you can't actually make a general claim at the end of it. You can't say indigenous students who who think this way do such and such. You can't say that about all indigenous students. You can say it about the classroom you observed or the, the, the oral history narrators you talked to. Well, technically, <laughs> because of the IRB approval, I am able to make generalized claims. And so what I say in the conclusion is that I'm able to generalize out that we see that Yurok and Zapotec language access is really powerful for heritage speakers in these classes. Therefore, we're able to generalize that access to heritage languages for many other ethnic minorities in different kinds of contexts may also be powerful for them. Clearly, there's context dependency. But I th- for me, the difference for oral history is... It does limit you to talking about only the specific population that's contributed to the oral histories. And the generalizability of social science means that, and I do, claim that the positives and the negatives visible in these specific case studies could also apply to other cases because they're being researched in ways that are looking at causality. Yeah, but you put a pin in your generalization when you told us your generalization because you said it may have implications. And I I appreciate that because we don't actually know if it does or doesn't. And, And so I think that it's important to kind of stay alive to the particularity yes. of what you've done and what you've seen, and it allows you to ref- to reflect, to imagine, to draw conclusions that are existentially valuable, but not necessarily statistically, you know, true in 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 some forensic sense. Yeah, in in this book, I I use a variety of methods. I use a mixed methods toolkit where I did interviews, I ran focus groups with young people, uh, I did a lot of participant observation, and I also included a survey with students that were both enrolled or not enrolled in the language classes within the four schools that I analyzed. And so, I, I mean, I think though our IRB is a problematic framework, it does actually allow me to generalize in ways that say, look, 
if other schools, if schools in Diné territory, if schools in Alaska, if schools in uh, El Salvador included indigenous language access for young people in the curriculum, we might expect to see the same kind of positive outcomes. We might expect to see positive related positive outcomes for non-heritage speakers if they were given access to these languages. So it's there is a right to generalize that still requires the delicacy of context and I'm I'm what's called a small end researcher. I with, work with a small number of case studies rather than working with a huge data set. And so I'm very cautious about the scale of the claims that right. I'm making because someone else could say hey but in my community that wouldn't work for this that exactly. and the other reason. Absolutely. You know your community better than I do because I haven't studied that community, but but that there may be an ability to have these positive outcomes uh, replicated in another community. I think that's a really important case, and it's one that the Yurok tribe also was was interested in better understanding that why wouldn't this be the same for Karuk or Wiat or Talua or other languages in far northern California, for example. I don't want that just as rushed by. She said she's a small N researcher. That means her the number of people she's dealing with is small. I often have, in my work, I often had an N of one. And uh, and I often thought, maybe I should have an N of none. You know, an N of none would be like, you know, I learned a lot from Beloved. There was an N of none in that. It was a novel, right? But but so knowledge is, is um, tricky that mm -hmm. way. And I don't think we have to, I think a small N researcher is a, is a nice way to describe yourself. And you, you can d do in-depth reportage on a very small phenomenon and 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 learn a lot as i say you can generalize existentially from that forever you can reflect on it for a long and deep time. Absolutely. And here my N was about 150 people that I did interviews with. So that includes high school students, school teachers, administrators, parents in the community, uh, language keepers, and, and other people that were connected to language teaching. And then I did, I think, 13 focus groups that had between three and seven young people, students in the focus groups. So there were another 50 plus people that I talked to in that capacity. And I think there were like 250 survey takers. So within political science that's still really small and research because some people are working with you know data sets in the thousands or millions but for political ethnography for this level of in-depth casework it's also a lot of people that I talk to it's enough people that I can say very very solidly the patterns that I saw fit these cases I it wasn't you know that I went and talked to two or three students per school in each of the four schools there were dozens of people that I spoke to enough that I, I can feel fairly confident in delivering the results I love the phrase language keepers. I hadn't heard that before. I know about water keepers and, you know, um, keepers of various traditions, but is that a common f usage now? People call, talk about language keepers? In California, yes. So within the Yurok tribe, people are language keepers if they speak at, you know, intermediate or advanced level language and are willing to transmit the language to, to other people. And I, I think it's a really powerful term. And just on another terminological note, one of the things that shifted in my own grammar of this work was not talking about language loss anymore, which is something that is the way that we often describe indigenous language 
existence and non-existence in today's world that, oh, these languages have been lost. Well, they they weren't lost. They were repressed and they were colonized and they were quashed. So the same way that the, the same way that that shift to language theft or language repression has changed my vocabulary. Also thinking about language keepers, um, there's a there's really a vitality in what it means to be a, a holder of cultural knowledge and someone who's willing to do that passing on. So I, I'm grateful to my colleagues for helping me better understand and use that this new vernacular. As I was reading this, I kept thinking I was a I was a, in residence at the University of Hawaii about 30 years ago and I met the Trask sisters who were language keepers. Now I'm going to use that language from now on. Um, you know, language keepers in Hawaii and I went to a school that they had started where they took Every book that they had in the shelves, whether it be a, a little book like uh, Goodnight Moon or Hop on Pop, and they put strips in, in native Hawaiian language. And it was so thrilling to watch kind of the transformation of the whole community because they were bringing the elders in to help translate. And and all these little strips, every book had, you know, um, I, you must know some about that work. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what the Mexico case studies are connected to, that there's just been this a huge amount of energy connected to language resurgence and revitalization in the state of Oaxaca, which is the second most southern state in Mexico, where there's a ton of cultural production happening in Zapotec languages. So there's poetry readings, there are there's literature being produced bilingually with Spanish and Zapotec on opposite pages, movies that are being subtitled or movies that are being done in Zapotec and then subtitled in Spanish. And I think that those acts of uh, language visibility are really powerful for helping not just young people, but everyone find a sense, find their way back to a sense of pride in that identity and language, particularly in spaces where people and elders have been told that they should not use the language or to being discriminated against because of using the language. So things like, you know, putting in the the indigenous translation of the book is a, it's an assertion of presence. It's a it's one way of saying what indigenous communities continue to say in the US, which is that we are still here. And so it's I think these are daily acts of resistance that people are engaged in. You you brought to mind a couple of other things as I was reading the book, and one was James Baldwin's Talk to Teachers, which is quite famous, and probably many of you who are educators know it. But the other thing he wrote that was so important, you can find that online, is called If Black English Isn't a Language, Then What Is It? And it's a really powerful he makes the same point you're making right now, that if you say to somebody, your language is not a language, your language is ignorance, your language is not vital and vibrant, then, you know, what are you saying to this kid? And and I love the way you frame it as not language loss, but language theft or language repression, part of the colonial project. You mentioned earlier, and folks probably know, but I'd like you to explain a little bit, because you just referenced uh, the boarding school experience for indigenous people. It was on the front page of the New York Times last week with a map of all the, the native boarding schools. And where we live and where you grew up, um, we we have friends who were who are our age, who are in their 80s, who were, um, you know, who were kidnapped and taken to Indian boarding schools. Maybe you would talk a little bit about that experience and why, why this is a, a resistance to that. Absolutely. I mean, 
so the Hoopa Valley High School, one of the four case studies is the physical building of today's public high school sits on the footprint of the Hoopa Valley boarding school that was constructed in the late 1800s and, and served that purpose was part of uh, the boarding school. And so many students who attend the high school today had grandparents or great grandparents who uh, either had been taken and forcibly put in that boarding school or who volunteered for a variety of reasons to to attend. But the when I first learned that, just the the symbolic power of what it would mean to be a student and attend the place where one's grandparents or great grandparents' culture had been forcibly repressed is so, Powerful and boarding schools were really these tools of colonization used to uh, to require uh, non use of indigenous languages, so for forcible use of English, forcible uh, letting go of indigenous practices in terms of clothing and food preparation and ceremony and religious practice, and they they were primary sites of colonization in the United States, and I in. The third chapter of the book, I look at that parallel process in Mexico in the way that similar uh, boarding schools in Mexico operated as sites of colonization where indigenous young people were were sent. Uh, and they were often, these were often uh, oppor- seen as opportunities in indigenous communities for young people to go become fluent in Spanish and learn, uh, learn non-indigenous ways of being so that they would have greater economic opportunity. And, you know, as, as decolonizing scholars and, and people, we can look at why people justified the sort of internal colonization that was happening in that process. But the parallel between United States and Mexico boarding schools and and colonization is so strong in looking specifically at the role of formal education in a, a process of a cultural indoctrination. And so when I look at the inclusion of indigenous languages in the curriculum of high schools, public high schools now, it is a it is a clear rejection of the process that took place through the boarding schools and a way to reassert that the formal education sector can offer something different to young people from many identities. So I, these are deeply, deeply uh, shameful colonizing histories that continue to shape people's present mm-hmm. in the United States, in Mexico, in Canada, in Australia, in, in many spaces that too often we think, oh, it's over and done with, but the intergenerational trauma is continuing to inform the way that people perceive their own identities, enact their own identities, and decide what of their identities to transmit to their own children. I mean, this book is an important tool for those of you who haven't read it, but but there also, I really urge you to look at the New York Times series on this um, on the history of the boarding schools. And one very powerful kind of... Um, emotional look at this is a movie called Rabbit Proof Fence, which maybe some of you have seen, but it's from Australia, and it is the same experience. And these boarding schools weren't, aren't something of the ancient past. They, they're they living, as you say, today in the people that we actually know out in the Hoopa Valley, but also they're living in the in the generational trauma. So I think it's as we the the concept of reparations is in the air, and it's on the agenda, and it's something that in our in our lifetimes is going to become more and more real. To have an open-headed, open-minded, open-hearted approach to that, the more you know about that history and about 
how it worked, how it operated, the better off we'll all be. So I, I salute you for that. But let me shift gears dramatically, and we're going to open it up. So I hope you are you have comments and questions and thoughts. But let me just do one last thing before we do that, which is, as a, as a white scholar, a white researcher, a white woman um, in America today, how did you how did you negotiate? How did you traverse the the land into um, indigenous communities? How did you understand it? What did you learn from it? Yeah, thank you for that question because it's a question that I talk about really explicitly in the book. Uh, when I was doing my doctoral training, I was not trained in how to talk about who I was in relation to the research that I wanted to do. And you in were fact, the researcher I, I was the researcher. Yeah. I had all of this knowledge <clears throat> and I was supposed to go implement my studies somewhere else and extract knowledge and take it. And then, you know, and I did. I wrote a first book that I am I am proud of called Democratization and Memories of Violence, Ethnic Minority Social Movements in Mexico, Turkey, and El Salvador. And I worked really hard on that book. And it is, I don't, I it, it's hard for me to label it as extractivist because I approached it as a human rights activist in solidarity with the communities that I was interested in researching. And I did not design that book in collaboration with the people that I was working with. So, you know, as a white Jewish mother, college professor, woman going into these communities and wanting wanting to document the stories that I heard circulating anecdotally, I approached it very slowly. I really took my time in building trusting relationships with people that were interested in having a vehicle for their story to be told, interested in participating in the research design. And it was very uncomfortable at times. I mean, to to be clear, and I talk about this in the book, I I regularly go to the Yurok tribe to ask for permission for various stages of the research. So before the research could begin, both in Mexico and the U.S., I had to present myself to the Yurok Tribal Council, to the uh, Community Council in Oaxaca, and ask for permission, describe what the research was, see if people were interested in participating, but also ask even permission to begin the study. And then I had to go back regularly to give updates about the research. And when it came time for the, for when I had a manuscript, I had to submit the manuscript to the Yurok Tribal Council and ask for their office of the tribal attorney to review it. And then ultimately ask the Yurok Tribal Council to officially vote on it, Mm -hmm. to actually approve it as something that they were comfortable being published about them. So, you know, I, I did not have the training and how to talk about who I am in relation to this work, but it's something that I really went back to my roots as a, a human rights activist, as a journalist, as someone willing to look at my own stuff in the process of the research to talk about it overtly and ultimately to try to open up the doorway for researchers that come after me to be comfortable talking about positionality, talking about power in relation to the work. And so the collaborative methodology framework is something that I've I've written about both in this book and beyond this book in a series of articles to offer a concrete toolkit for how collaborative methodology can be taken up across the social sciences. It requires looking at who one is deeply and being explicit about that at every stage of the research process. And so it can be painful and awkward and uncomfortable. And I really think it's an ethical necessity in situations where there is a historic power differential between researchers and and communities that may have a stake in the research. 
So would you call yourself an ally of the people you worked with? Uh, the term that I use in the book is co-conspirator. So, and that's courtesy of Dr. Bettina Love. She talks about in her uh, in her book this notion of being a co-conspirator, being someone who whose own destiny is bound up in the communities that we participate in, rather rather than being an ally. Yeah, the the term that I like is um, is comrade or solidarity. But but I think I think too often in in social sciences, certainly in teaching, we develop an attitude of service, not solidarity. And I think solidarity is an entirely different model. And in research, I think being a co-conspirator or a, or a comrade is different because, and I, I think it's not only that the term ally has a patronizing tone and a kind of a patronizing history, but I actually think if you're a comrade or a co-conspirator, let's take something away from this. I mean, take, for example, male supremacy. Men, as James Baldwin always said, you know, when blacks free themselves, they will also free white people. And when women free themselves, men will also be free. Free from what? Free from the precarious position of thinking you're so, you know, on, on the top of things, you know, and freed from the precariousness of that. And I, and I think that that's something really admirable in the book is your struggle with that. I'm not sure it's a struggle we can ever quite resolve, but I think it's a struggle that acknowledging it and diving into the contradiction of it is worthwhile. And I think you drive, dive into that contradiction with a lot of grace and courage. So I admire that in the book very much. Um, I want to at least take a breath and offer you all a chance to shout out uh, if you have anything you would particularly like Manisha to talk about. Um, if not, I can go on for for a long time. Oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Yes. I can't hear. Because there are, my children go to CPS. Your children go to Boston Public School. Yes. So after doing all this research, do you have any generalized ideas that could inform a large urban public school system like our mm -hmm. children go to? Because... As you know, CPS, I love, CP, I love CPS, um, is still very much a very, I'd say, like the generalized curriculum is still very colonial. Yeah. Like, from, I'm, I'm not a social yeah. scientist, so excuse me if I do not mm -hmm. proper language, but the education that my kids are getting, the teachers are amazing, they're doing great work with what they have, they don't have a lot of tools. Um, they don't have a lot of time, and they have a lot of students. Um, you, do you believe it's something like creating programs or magnet schools within the giant framework of a large school system to provide spaces for these students? Or, I mean, what kind of ideas do you have around that? Yeah, so just to just to repeat the question for the microphone, the question is around ideas for how to address the ongoing colonization that is happening within large public school systems, including Chicago public schools and Boston public schools, where my own kids attend. Uh, and I have a third grader and a sixth grader, so I've been following this for, you know, for years, watching the Thanksgiving coloring sheets come home, reading. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a real issue. I, I mean, my sixth grader is annoyed because I read 
her social studies curriculum with her year after year. And I talk about the things that are not okay. And I appreciate the things that are okay. And I do, you know, I do commend Boston for stepping it up. They've, they have instituted uh, and piloted various social justice oriented curricula over the years. I mean, first, I will just say that one lesson for me in this research is how powerful school boards are. We're, you know, we're in, are we in banned book week right now? This is, the, the, we, are. we are, we are in this week of thinking about who controls access to information. So for me, the power of school boards and the power of the curricula committees in the school, in the school executive committees really came home. Um, I've now done multiple presentations to school boards in the California districts and also to the curriculum committees. I, I consulted on encouraging one district to add a question about uh, inclusion to its checklist, to the worksheet that curricular committees have to fill out. Like, does this, does this textbook include diverse perspectives? Does it include perspective, perspectives of people from multiple backgrounds that educators should be evaluating? There wasn't a question about that before when I looked at the previous iteration of the checklist that the committee was using. So I think that there's definitely a role as parents and as community members to be vocal and to, to email our school boards and let them know that we support the reading of banned books, that we support the inclusion of indigenous perspectives or perspectives of, of black, indigenous, and people of color uh, perspectives in, across the materials that our children encounter uh, and being involved with our own kids' schools allows us uh, also a degree of input. So there's the systemic approach and then the individual approach is certainly having enough knowledge ourselves to be able to talk to our kids, to talk to our communities about problematic information that's coming home. And I am vigilant about the material for my for my kids. And I have emailed the teachers and, you know, and sometimes had productive exchanges of like, okay, you're including this, but you're also going to include this other thing later. The Thanksgiving coloring sheet, I was assured, must have come from some bottom of the pile teacher's archive, that it was not something that the school conducted being actively used. But if I was not paying attention, I wouldn't have known to even invoke that question. So, I, I mean, I think it's really a question of how do we encourage cultural intercultural competency in our school districts? And these are gigantic questions, but we, we have to not expect that other people can do the full work of, of educating our kids we have to be involved. And then systemically, we need to be vocal about the values that we have for our school. So whether it's running for a school board seat or supporting other people that are, um, or just reaching out and signaling preference, because, you know, the, the, what is it, the one that's happening in the South right now, like Moms United or something oh, yeah, that's, it's, 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 so they're, they're signaling their preferences about what educational curriculum should entail. And, you know, those of us that believe that there should be more diverse perspectives in the curriculum need to signal that as well. Well, I, I, let's go a little further. Moms United for Liberty is the same group that tried to stop integration of the schools. Mm -hmm. It's not, I mean, we're reliving all these same struggles and it's always at bottom about white supremacy and and the, the assertion that anything that challenges that is somehow dangerous to the future of the world or the country. But right. I, 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 I should have said vote. Yeah, <laughs> right? vote we, for sure. We also need to vote because well, we can look at the curricular debates happening in Florida around critical race theory and everything else. Like people in, in elected positions hold a tremendous amount of power in determining the curricular access that our kids and everyone else's kids have access to. 
Absolutely, vote. And the, and the other thing is vote and get into the streets. I mean, we walk toward real change on two legs. One is mobilization, and the other is real politics. But those of us here in Chicago know, as I said to Bernadine the day after Brandon Johnson was elected, well, now aren't the potholes going to you know, fill themselves. I mean, that's the kind of idealism that election, you know, electoral politics can lead to. No, they won't fill themselves. The only possibility we have, and it's amazing the struggles that went on over the last decade, two decades, that have come to this point where Brandon was elected. But I don't want to say it ended with that. If we're not mobilizing more mobilizations for more important issues, including around refugees and all that, then we're, we're leaving him stranded. So, the, the mass movement has to happen. So yes, vote. The other thing, uh, at the risk of being professorial, I am a professor after all, um, and we do have a thing, uh, Roxana and I, in the podcast where we we not only promote banned books and promote bookstores like this, but we also uh, have a book of books. We want people to be thinking, what else should I read? So your question provokes in me a desire to say, you really ought to read Bettina Love. Um, Manisha cites her in the book. She has a new book called... um, I don't know the new one. Punished for Dreaming. And it's uh, it's a history of school reform efforts in the last 25 years that have left black people screwed. And and it's a really important kind of analysis of how everything comes on the wings of a liberal do-gooding, I'm a nice person, this would be good for your kids, and ends in catastrophe. And, And I think that it's important as you are engaged with struggles in the school. You started, though, by saying something that I think is really important, Teachers in Boston, teachers in Chicago all have too many kids, too few resources, and too little time. That is the triple, that's the trifecta of what drives all teachers nuts. So when we think about systemic reform, let's not do something that's gimmicky, that misses too few, too little time, too few resources, and too many kids. For me, it always is useful to look at what the rich kids have and say, if it's good enough for them then it has to be good enough for our community as a whole. So whenever anything happens, I I think I told you this, Thomas, but when anything happens in the Chicago Public Schools, I immediately go to lab school or Francis Parker to find out what they do, right? So when they banned Persepolis in the Chicago Public Schools, the great graphic novel by Marjane Satrapi, they banned it in the Chicago Public Schools because one parent had a complaint about one frame in a in a novel, you know, this thick. Um, the complaint was that in one frame, a kid is a little boy is peeing in the street, and you can see his penis. Oh my God! So it's banned. So I went to lab school and said, "How many do you have Persepolis in the library? Twelve copies, including one in the original French. And do you read the book? Every seventh grader is required to read it. So the wealthy kids, the privileged kids, have access to real art and real literature, and the other kids have access to one more hour of drill and skill, you know, or kill. Uh, so it, it's really important that we hold that up, that notion that we want these public schools to work because." Without them, the the public dies. Yeah. Other comments, questions? Yes, Clark. I'd like to go back to thought where it all began, which is the relationship between people narrating their own stories and your academic generalizations. And I wondered if you had an example of hearing a person tell his or her story 
in a way that suddenly led you to say, wow, that's the basis for a whole new theoretic framework we're talking about. I've had that experience. Mm -hmm. I just wondered if if that happened in the course of these 150-some yeah, so the question is about the the realization of someone narrating their own experience in a way that illuminates for the researcher like there's something there that needs to that needs to be looked at. I mean, I, that happened over and over for me as as a researcher. Every language keeper I spoke with both in Mexico and in California was so clear that they saw the access to indigenous languages as something that helped them and the people they were teaching feel better about themselves. You know, it's this obvious thing that when our heritage is validated in whatever form that takes, that we can feel a sense of pride or well-being or comfort in who we are. But to hear to hear them saying, well, of course, when I speak Yurok, of course, when I speak Zapotec and someone else enjoys speaking it with me, or of course, when I learn more about the language and I feel proud of who I am or who my parents are, who my grandparents are, it makes me feel better about myself. It makes me want to participate more in politics, in cultural life, in civic life. to me, it was seeing that this this wisdom already exists, this knowledge already exists within the communities that, you know, language is culture in many ways. It's a marker of culture, and it's a reason that I follow language politics in this and some of my other work. I don't, I, I'm not a linguist, and I, language is not my specialty, but I look to language politics as a way to understand cultural politics, identity politics. And, um, you know, v- Victoria... Carlson, who I actually interview for my next book that'll be hopefully come out in a couple of years. She is the the manager for the Yurok language program, and she's one of the language keepers that has been so invested in uh, promoting access to the Yurok language. And so I, I worked with her in designing the research puzzle for this book, and then I worked with her in the puzzle and also um, documenting her own story in in a book that's in progress. You know, she she said when I when I was younger, I thought that everyone spoke the language. And then as I got older, I realized, no, it was only in these specific pockets of the community. And I wanted other people to have access to it. I want other people to have access to it. And so she's dedicated her life to making that be possible, making as many resources for learning Yurok available to people as possible. I didn't know, I didn't know that on a gut level until she said it. You know, I don't speak Yiddish, which is the language of my ancestors. I grew up as, you know, a religious minority, as a Jewish person person in the U.S. I haven't had that same experience of, like, getting to access the language that connects me to my ancestors, but it, something clicked when she said it. And it's actually, it's actually made me want to learn Yiddish. Like, oh, what would it mean to look at my own, uh, my own heritage language? How would that change the way that I feel being in the U.S.? So, yeah, I mean, the, the, in the book, there are so many young people's voices and also the voices of language keepers who really illustrate that their own experience is, is the reason that we need to fight for it on, on every level. Did you learn Yiddish? 
I haven't. I just I just reviewed a book called Yiddish Lives On for the journal um, Nationalism and Ethnic Politics. I actually just published today. And in corresponding with the uh, the author of that book, I said, your book made me really want to learn Yiddish in combination with this one. Like, I think it's time that I look at my own heritage language politics and try to to better understand the, the impact that that language loss has had on my own story. And actually, maybe that's my light bulb moment. I didn't think about my own language loss or language assimilation story until I was really deep into writing this book. So I'm trying to take the lessons from this book and apply it to when myself. Our son, when our son Zaid was about 18, he was taking an El Al flight as a single 18-year-old man from New York to Tel Aviv. He was actually going to Cairo via Tel Aviv. And they questioned him. They said, Zaid, isn't that an Arabic name? He said, it is. They said, are you an Arab? He said, no, I'm Jewish. And they said, do you speak Hebrew? He said, no, not even Shalom. Okay, Shalom. And they said, well, do you speak Yiddish? And he said, not really. I mean, I know some songs. And they said, sing one. And he saw, sang this communist uprising song in Yiddish. And, and so that was not proof that he was a Jew, but it was close enough. Anyway, um, ridiculous. I know. I want to ask you one one last question, and then I want to assure you that we're going to have time to hang out, talk to Manisha, have her sign a book, and so on. But the last question I'd like to ask you um, has to do with your advocacy, your politics, and your scholarship. How do you balance, you know, being an advocate, being a human rights activist, being somebody who's pushing for uh, prison reform, prison abolition, with being a scholar? How do you balance those things? I think. And does Emerson College love you for it? <laughs> not, not enough. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I I don't balance it well. I mean, something has to give, right? And I do just a tremendous amount of um, advocacy on on behalf of of different groups of people. And I think my kids would say that I don't balance it well because they sometimes get the short end of that stick and seeing less of me. You know, the I, I say in the thank yous like the number of times I've said just one more minute, just five more minutes to my kids as I'm on the computer, or count countless times, but. I so I I founded and I'm I'm the director of the Emerson Prison Initiative and I spend a lot of time working on college access for people who are incarcerated. Uh, my work on the politics of violence in El Salvador and Mexico has set me up to do a lot of expert witnessing in asylum cases for people who are claiming asylum in U.S. immigration court. And I spend a, t a, a lot of time working on those cases and researching the country conditions and being able to um, to provide testimony in court in that way and. I think that my scholarly training is a really important way that I access the language of power because having the credentials, having the title that I do brings a weight to my words, certainly in immigration court, certainly with the Department of Correction, uh, that that I wouldn't have had I not done that that scholarly training. And I think it gives me a systemic way to filter information and to adjudicate information that I can apply to the things that I'm vocal on. Um, but but it is painful. And I think one thing I don't talk about in this book, maybe it's a future book project, is you know the, the secondary trauma and the way that working as a witness to so many people's suffering accumulates in, in the researcher and in the activist uh, 
body, mind, spirit. And and I'm thinking a lot at this point in my life about how to tune into that and be able to address that better because I, I bear witness constantly in both my research and my activism. But the I think that the language of power that I can use because of my academic training is valuable. It brings a seat at the table. It means I walk into school board meetings and I'm listened to in a, you know, in a different register than when I go in as a mom, right? And so I I did 12 years of college and graduate school and I'm willing to pull out those credentials and yeah. say like I I want access to that and I will say as a professor right now my my uh, students in Boston are in my US Latin American politics class and I'm training them on in-text citations and the correct formatting of bibliography and how to write research papers that operate in a certain register and sometimes there's resistance to that and I say, you know, to have a seat at the policymaking table, we have to speak a certain language. I'm, I am a pro multilingual person in my politics and I, my classrooms are multilingual spaces and my research is multilingual. But there, we also acknowledge that the hegemonic language, the lingua franca that we use, whether it's, whether it's English or Spanish in a given public space also operates in academia and in activism. And so finding a lingua franca that allows us to, to, use all the tools of power that we can bring to a certain issue. I think that's a space for me where the scholarly and the activist work combine. Sure, of course, and folks who have the privileges that we have can also, some of the time, kick the table over and say, listen to that mom over there, damn it. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, that's, yeah. that's part of what we can do. I, I think it's important, though, to note that whether you're in a school or university or, or any institutional law firm, the institution's not going to love you. So don't go to the institution to love you because it will not love you back. Um, and, and I think that's important. But I also think, I also think the struggle, you and I talked about this before, the struggle of advocacy and professional work, of scholarship and activism, of, you know, being a mom and being, uh, a citizen. These are complicated struggles, and there is no answer. Recognizing them helps. So I was telling you about a young African-American novelist named Danielle Evans. Deep in her latest novel, she has a dialogue between two moms, and one woman says, is being a mother impossible for you? And she, the other woman says, absolutely impossible. Every morning I wake up since Olivia was born and ask myself, am I going to make this a great day for Olivia? Am I going to make her life great? Or am I going to try to make the world great enough so that she can live in it with freedom and comfort? I think that's the dilemma. And I don't think that's, I don't think it's resolvable, but I think we can, we can understand it and dive into the contradiction more consciously, and perhaps that way, be truer to ourselves. Well, listen, we're going to come to an end, but I want to make one last announcement, which is I, which I failed to do in the beginning, and that is that we are here in Pilsen Community Books, a unique institution, a valuable institution, and we have a responsibility because it is a public space where we can have conversations like this and welcome people like Manisha Gelman. We have a responsibility to keep its doors open. So I want everybody here to buy at least one book and have this be one of them. Um, and Manisha will sign it. And then if you see a second book, like I'm looking over here, I'm seeing the speeches of Martin Luther King, and I'm seeing, you know, um, uh, I'm seeing, yes, uh, Punished for Dreaming, Bettina Love's book. Buy that book also, and Manisha will sign it, right? 
You'll sign anything. <laughs> She'll sign anything. She'll sign a check. Um, but I'm serious when I say that this institution cannot live without us. We benefit from it. We have to support it. So please buy a book. And beyond that, let's thank Manisha Gelman for this book, for her work, and for being here tonight. Thank you so much, Bella. Thank you. It was great. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your life a force of cultural survival and flourishing.